We do continue to believe in the importance of being able to hedge risk as an institution. However, we also understand the need for rules and practices to ensure that hedging doesn't morph into something different. What this hedge morphed into violates our own principles in terms of complexity and risk. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. That was J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon you heard at the top. He was talking this morning at the company's shareholder meeting. Today on the show, every single dollar bill in the world is printed on paper made at one small paper mill in Massachusetts. That's been the case for 130 years. Today we visit that mill. But first, David. Oh, yeah, the indicator. Thank you. Today's Planet Money indicator, $2 billion. I know this one. I know this one. J.P. Morgan Chase said it lost $2 billion because of some big trade that blew up. Correct. <laughs> that is today's indicator. And and this loss, this $2 billion loss, it does not pose any kind of major threat to J.P. Morgan. It's not on its own some big worry about the economy. But it's really super interesting for lots of reasons. Uh, one, one thing I've been trying to figure out today is how this fits with the Volcker rule. Uh, the Volcker rule, of course, is the rule that it's part of the big finance overhaul that Congress passed a few years ago. And it says banks cannot make speculative bets in the market. Jacob, J.P. Morgan didn't use the words speculative bet when they described how this trade went wrong. The word they used was hedge. And the Volcker rule, it specifically says hedges are totally fine. Hedges are things that are meant to reduce your risk. So if you own a stock or a bond, you can do some other transaction to sort of balance it out. So if the bond goes down, the hedge goes up. Yeah. I mean, in, in the simple universe, a hedge is just a kind of protection. I have some part of my business, I'm making loans or something, and then I can go make some other trade. That an insurance policy. Yeah, it's like an insurance policy. But when you get to a bank as big as J.P. Morgan, a bank that is involved everywhere in the global economy, in a sense, their risks are everywhere, all over the world. So you could take almost any trade you could imagine. J.P. Morgan could do that trade and point to it and say, oh, yeah, that trade, that's a hedge. Because we own everything. Because we do everything. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, and that's arguably valid. But if it is valid, then the Volcker rule becomes very hard to understand, right? Because if everything could be a hedge, then the bank can make whatever speculative bet it wants and say, oh, no, that's not a speculative bet. That's a hedge. And so this is a real problem. The regulators, there are, in fact, five regulatory agencies working on the Volcker rule. And they know it's a problem. There are hundreds of pages of, like, draft proposed rules. And they're trying to work all this out. But it's frankly still unclear whether a bet like this one, in this case of J.P. Morgan, whether it would have been banned under the Volcker rule or not. Thanks, Jacob. Sure, David. On to the show, where dollar bills come from. So in the morning when I, w I was doing this story, I was buying breakfast, a bagel, and I had this weird moment. I saw everyone buying stuff with dollars, and for the first time, I didn't think of it as money. I saw it as a product. You know, if you are the company that makes that paper, it's got to feel awesome, right? You make a product that everyone in America uses all the time. And David, you actually went to the company to visit the factory where they make that paper. So take it away. All right, it's this small mill tucked into a valley by a river in Dalton, Massachusetts. It's actually very pretty. And when I get there, I meet Doug Crane, who hands me the most solid, substantial business card I have ever seen. It's actually more like a wedding invitation. It is important that you can cut a steak with your business card, I think. <laughs> the card reads, Douglas A. Crane, Vice President of Crane & Company. 
Doug said he'd show me where our money comes from, and he leads me into this old weathered factory building. It feels a little bit abandoned. We go through a door, up some stairs, and he points above us to this giant metal medieval-looking sphere. It's kind of like the Death Star from Star Wars, only it's a small Death Star. It's pretty crazy looking. Looks a bit like a a large diving bell uh, that Jules Verne would have uh, uh, constructed, I suppose. It is really Uh, crazy looking. How big is it? It's about 15 feet in diameter, uh, and uh, it it will hold, uh, you know, several thousand pounds of fiber at a time. That's the raw material for dollar bills in there. That's right. So that's where it all starts. It turns out no trees are killed in the making of dollar bills. What is in that big ball is linen. A dollar bill is 75% cotton, 25% linen. It's more like a T-shirt or something. And on the floor next to us are these huge mounds of damp linen fiber that's already been cooked. It is the most unremarkable stuff. It's kind of gray, and it smells a bit like wet leaves. Linen and cotton make for very sturdy paper. As a quality check, Doug says they do this thing called a fold test where a machine folds the paper and unfolds it and folds it and unfolds it until it breaks. And currency paper can last like 5,000 folds. Normal paper that you'd stick in a copy machine, that, he says, will break after about 100. You spend a lot of time trying to make these dollar bills really tough. How does it feel when you're out there in the world and you see some someone crumple up a dollar bill and stick it in their pocket or it's like thrown in some tip jar or something yeah. like that? I think it's great. I'm like, you know, this is what the product's made for. It's 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 there to be used. And if this is how people want to use it, that's, you know, that's up to them. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Have you seen a bill that particularly impressed you that it, like, held up so long or that it seemed so, like, it had been through a lot in particular? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, we had an example of, of one banknote that ended up in an eagle's nest uh, that had been in an eagle's nest, I think, for quite some time. Uh, and it was just, you know, the thing looked to be in pretty good shape. A little weathered, I would say, uh, but there it was. Jacob, if you asked how this little mill ended up making the paper for the most trusted currency in the world, it is a wild story. Doug's father was a papermaker, and his father's father, and his father's father's father, and his father's father's father. All right, father. How, how long are you <laughs> going to go? I'm, I'm back. I'm here to interrupt you. <laughs> the story starts in 1879, and this, this story is lore in Doug's family. I love it because it demonstrates the power of competition. So Doug takes me to this little museum they have at the mill. It's in this other old building, and it has some historical documents in it. And the whole story is laid out there. In 1879, Rutherford B. Hayes is president, and the paper for the U.S. currency at the time is not being made by the Crane family. It is being made by another mill in Philadelphia, J.M. Wilcox and Company. The U.S. government is buying the paper from them for 75 cents a pound. And 75 cents a pound seemed expensive to the U.S. Treasury Secretary at the time. Wilcox and Company said, OK, well, you know, we can do it for a little less. Instead of 75 cents, we can do 70 cents a pound. And the Treasury Secretary thinks about it and decides, you know what? We're going to open up the contract and let people bid on it. We're going to see if someone can give us an even better price. The market. I love it. Lo and behold, Wilcox comes in even lower, substantially lower at 61 and four-tenth cents. And Jacob, here I have a copy of a handwritten letter they have in the museum describing what happened. 
It's, it's a like little handwritten. Hard to, yeah, it's, it's handwritten <laughs> and it's very fuzzy. But but clearly there are more bids coming in, uh, and and apparently people are bidding even lower. One Winthrop Murray Crane bids forty cents. Someone else bids even lower at thirty nine and three quarter cents per pound. The bidding is this long, ongoing process that lasts for days. And finally, in literally the last minutes, there is one last lowest bid, Winthrop Murray Crane again. This time for a smidge less, thirty eight and nine tenths cents a pound. Which wins it? The winning bid, I should note, wins by less than a penny a pound. It is sort of fun to imagine this America that was just so different. The story goes that on the last day, the competitors tried to keep Winthrop Murray Crane in his room, in his hotel room, to make sure he didn't go out and put in an even lower final bid. They threw him a going away party, but he he snuck out and ran down to the Treasury building just before the deadline. It's a delightful story. It seems like a myth, I have to say. It seems to be true. That's actually the tame version. Here's Peter Hopkins. He's a historian who runs that little museum at the mill. There are other versions out there that that tell us that his competitors locked him in his, his room, and he, being a tall, skinny New Englander, climbed out through the transom and then sprinted down to the, the treasury building. Transom is the little part over the, over door, the door or the window? Exactly, yeah. However it happens, Winthrop Murray Crane puts in the lowest bid, and he writes home to his dad and says, hey, we won the contract. Here's Doug Crane. The story goes that when he came back to town, uh, his father sort of took him aside, well, that's very nice. Now you must make it. And he put him to work in the mills and perfecting the recipe and overseeing the production of it. And you guys have had the contract ever since? Yes, we have, yeah. Winning the contract is one thing. Keeping it, that's another. Currency paper has to be has to be two things, right? It has to be durable. Okay, they've done that. But there's this other thing. It's arguably the most important quality you want in currency, which is that it has to be hard to counterfeit. If it turned out half of the $100 bills that are out there had been printed on someone's office copy machine, no one would trust the U.S. dollar. And while you might think that the security features are in the ink and the printing, it turns out a lot of the security is at Doug's end, in the paper itself. And here, Doug drives us to what looks like another modest old mill building, but it's got modern fences around it and guards, friendly guards. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Eastgate to 806. I have Mr. Crane with his three guests. Stand for sign the Okay, very good. Hey, Frank. Hey. This is where the final paper is made. And when we get inside, the paper is whizzing around on these long sheets of paper over rollers. Doug puts his hand out to sort of affectionately touch the paper as it zips by. Feel, it turns out, that is one of the security features. Often counterfeits, they just can't match the paper quality. But there are all these other little hidden security features. There's a plastic security strip the government provides that's embedded in the bill, in the $20 bill, for instance. If you look really close, there are these tiny words that say 20 and USA. And there's subtler stuff. Doug took a bill out of his pocket, and he pointed to these little colored threads scattered around. There's a red one there, and there's another one up over there. They're just everywhere in there. And all the denominations have a mixture of red and blue. Different mixture for each bill or no? Um, I'm not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> This happens several times in our conversation, like when he shows me a blank sheet of currency paper that's destined to be $20 bills. So this is a sheet, is a full-size sheet. Can I take this home with me? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. This is actually, you know, e- even though it's here at our mill and we have made this, 
that by law, this is really, uh, you know, the property of the U.S. government. And if you were to possess this sheet of paper outside this environment, uh, you could be arrested and charged with a fairly serious crime. When a shipment of paper is ready to be sent to the Bureau of Printing and Engraving, it gets picked up by two guys in an 18-wheeler. The truck looks like any other truck on the highway, but it's secretly armored. We actually ran into two of the drivers. One of the guys said, yeah, it's a little weird, you know, when they pull into a rest stop and people notice that they're wearing guns. People will say, what are you hauling? He says he always tells them it's Halloween candy. Uh, Now, Doug says no one has ever stolen any paper, but there have been some very impressive counterfeits that surface occasionally. You may have heard of these counterfeits called super notes. One day, Doug got a call from the Secret Service asking him to come check one out to see what he thought of it. This was down in Washington. I was at the Secret Service at the counterfeit lab there and, and was shown this note. When you looked at it, were you like, oh, that's a pretty impressive fake? Yeah, I did. I, I looked at it and I, I thought, boy, uh, someone has, has really stayed up a lot of nights uh, putting a lot of effort into this. Was it a fake hundred? It was a fake hundred, yeah. Jacob, it's unclear who is making these. The U.S. government has said it might be North Korea. But the counterfeit rate, in general, it is very low. Researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago published this estimate that something like one in 10,000 U.S. bills in circulation are fakes. That's that's like 0.01%. One of the things that's interesting to me to think about you at this little mill in Massachusetts, I mean, we can think of them as just another U.S. government contractor, but Really, the U.S. government here is sort of a middleman because the the final sort of customer for crane paper is is us, is basically every person on the globe who wants to hold a U.S. dollar bill. So really, crane at this little mill, they have to be able to crank out enough paper for every person in the world who wants dollar bills. And sometimes they have to do it really quickly. Doug told me this amazing story that when the financial crisis hit, the government called and said, We need paper for $100 bills, more hundreds. There was all of a sudden a big increase in demand for $100 bills in the middle of the financial crisis. We ran seven days a week for weeks on end, uh, making hundreds. Even today, a large percentage of production is $100 notes just to continue to meet this ongoing demand overseas. Turns out there are more $100 bills in circulation than $20 bills. More hundreds than 20s. I mean, you see $20 bills every single day. I have a few in my wallet. When was the last time you saw 100? It's shocking to us to think of this, of course, because we don't see them. Where are they? Uh, overseas, people seek out hundreds, and, uh, you know, it's, I guess one term is mattress money. Uh, it's a safe haven for them. Where do they put them? I couldn't tell you. I mean, it, just, it goes out there. I'm not sure anyone knows. Okay, David, I'm sold that Doug Crane is doing a good job making these bills and providing the world with all the U.S. currency at once. But there's this one sort of big picture question that I still have, which is, you know, when we go back, the story for how Crane got the contract in the first place 100 years ago was a story about the benefit of competition and how opening this up saved the U.S. government so much money. And now from what you're saying, Crane has this long running monopoly. Yeah, this is not a secret. It is something people have thought about. The Government Accountability Office published a report in 1998. The title was Meaningful Competition Unlikely Under Current Conditions. Uh, And Doug says that's a fair assessment. I mean, a lot of specialty paper mills have gone out of business. His is one of the few that are left. And the paper they make, it is not ordinary paper. It has all these security features in it. So at this point, they are the only real option, which does raise this question. How do we know the government's getting a good price from you if you're the only game in town? 
Uh, that's an excellent question. And, you know, because we are the only game in town, we know that we have to behave in a responsible way. And also, the government just makes them open their books, does a pretty intense audit every four years when the contract is up for renewal. We have full disclosure of what all of the production costs are. It's how the government purchases from a, from a sole source. David, you and I were talking about this a while ago, trying to figure out how to evaluate this kind of thing. And it does seem like you could look at what another country pays for its paper as maybe some kind of comparison. Yeah, so I looked into that a bit. I tried to compare with Canada. As far as I can tell, the U.S. dollar is cheaper to make than the Canadian dollar. So I don't know. Maybe we're getting a really good price. I asked Doug Crane, how much profit are you making selling currency paper to the U.S. government? He said, you know, I I can't tell you. It's proprietary. Uh, So I put in a request with the U.S. government to see if they could give us some measure of the profit Crane is making. And Jacob, just before we walked in here, I got a phone call saying, sorry, you know, that's it's proprietary. We we can't release it. You can contest that. And maybe we'll contest it. Contest it. All right. But right now on the show, there's really one more subject we have to cover. If I were Doug Crane, I would be worried about the future. You know, it seems unlikely that Doug's grandson or anybody else is going to be making paper for money in 50 years, right? I mean, credit cards are already old. People are working on cell phone payment technology. I asked Doug the 50-year question. Won't we be paying for everything with our cell phones or some chip in our brain? Are we really going to be still using dollar bills for anything? And he said, yeah, I think so. You know, you look at a banknote, you sit there, you hold it, you, you know you've got it. Uh, it's right there. I know how much I've got in my hand. Uh, and there's a level of security to that um, that you just don't get with, you know, if you say, well, how much is on my cell phone? You've got to call up something, you plug in a pin or you do something, and, and it tells you a bunch of numbers. And you've got to think, well, is that really what I had there yesterday? Yeah, but my entire retirement account is just numbers. It's a place I don't, I don't get to hold that in my hands ever. I better believe it's real. That's a good point. I mean, really, do you think in 50 years, are, is cash going to be any significant fraction of the transactions in the United States? I'm sure it's going to be a significant fraction of the transactions. In 50 years? I, I just In 50 years, I just couldn't tell you what it's going to be. Jacob, I can tell you at least where things look like they're heading – I found some numbers. According to McKinsey and Company, the consulting firm, people are using the dollar less and less. Back in 2001, 37% of transactions were done with cash. And last year, a decade later, it's a lot lower. About 30% of all transactions are done with cash. David, we should add here that McKinsey data you were just talking about, that's for U.S. transactions only, and it just looks at what consumers are buying from businesses. We'll have a chart of that data up on our blog at npr.org money. You can also email us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.